Okay, how many of y'all, is this on? Can y'all hear me? Okay, so I had to mess with the mic for a normal-sized human being's head. <laughs> um, how many of y'all watch The Office regularly on Netflix? Okay, really? Come on, honestly, there's got to be more than that. It's like the most, yeah, thank you for raising both hands, Corbin. Um, yeah, the reason I'm starting off with that is that it's the most popular show on Netflix, hands down, and Netflix has got a lot of great stuff, and um, the reason I'm starting off with that is because uh, I think the reason it is the most watched show, but probably period, is because we are a really lonely culture, and in ways that's hard to enunciate, we want the kind of deep community and connection that those friends, that the people that feel like friends have there. But we're not very good at the work, relational work, that it takes to create those kind of things. And the reason I say all that is because I am so proud of this church. Uh, sincerely, I have been coming here. I asked Brian, I think it is fair to say I have slept in this church building more than any other person in this room. <laughs> which is a weird thing for the visiting preacher to say. I get that. <laughs> But for the last 10 years, every year, I come here in, in, uh, on study break, and I go to Fuller Seminary and read and study and get ready for the sermon stuff that I'm doing back in my um, local church that I work at. And I also hang out with Brian, who's one of my best friends. And let me tell you what I've known about this church for 10 years. Because <clears throat> how many of y'all are new within the last year here? Okay, well, quite a few of you. One of the things about this church that I'd like you to know is... Um, this is a place where you can deep can have deep connections with other people. It's warm. It's I mean, communion today was uh, a perfect example of that. Thelma um, standing up here and, and sharing her convictions, and Brian being like an office character, Dwight helping her with the microphone. <laughs> By the way, Miss Thelma, where are you, Miss Thelma? Yeah, the, yeah, he does that to me all the time too. So, <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, I also would like you to know, Brian really is one of my best friends in the world. I know because he made me rank my best friends. <coughs> so he's number two for what it's worth. And um, you can trust his instincts. He really does have this church's best interest at heart. You can trust his instincts and you can trust the shepherds of this church. I, I know them well. For years I've known them well. And let me tell you what I've noticed. This may or may not be helpful, but as somebody who just comes in every now and then drops in, I can see the changes that maybe you can't see. And let me tell you what I see. This church is ready for guests. Better, more than any time I've ever been here in my past, I, walking through this church building, I can see you have thought intentionally of what it would be like for somebody who was coming here for the first time. With the way you, your signs, with the way you kind of thought. And the reason that matters is because a lot of churches um, are opening and welcoming to guests, but they don't have what you have. This warm, intimate community where it really matters to belong. And you should be careful inviting people to belong to something that's not worth belonging to. And this place is worth belonging to. Okay, so that's all the good stuff I'm going to say about Brian. And Brian didn't ask me to say that. Brian didn't pay me to say that. It's just I really do love this church. Now, if you grew up in church, how many of y'all are Buicks, brought up in church kids? Just show hands. Okay, there are certain things that when you read the Bible, you don't think about because you just, you're used to the Bible. Like one of the things that uh, most people who first read the Bible would have asked is, why 
is the gospel of Luke so stinking long? And not just that, but he also writes a sequel, the book of Acts, The Empire Strikes Back to the Gospel of Luke, which makes up like a third of the New Testament. It was really, really long. And the reason you don't ask, ask that, for the most part, is because your Bible looks like this. But when it was first written, it would have looked a little bit more like this. Now, I've asked Brother Will to give me a little bit of help here, but it would have looked more like a scroll that was rolled out. So here, do you mind? And then I'm just going to roll it out. It would have been the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Would Somebody stop me when you think it's about 30 feet. Right there? Yeah, I'm awful at 30 feet. Okay, do you, okay that's good. Enough. Okay, you see. Just lay it down there, Brother Will. We're gonna, you can see this. This is how big the Gospel... Whoa, no, it's moving. I need a songbook. <coughs> can somebody give me something to... Yeah, an iPhone. All right, you are really trustworthy. And then we're all going to stand on it afterward. No. Um, so it would have been about 30 feet. It would have been this long, which means Luke sits down and starts writing, you know, uh, I tell you, Theophilus. And then he goes all the way through, all the way through. And that's part one. The question that most people would be asking when they first unrolled this is, seriously? Because this is before Dunder Mifflin made limitless paper for a paperless world. This was back when it cost a lot of money to write stuff down. And most of the world was illiterate. So why in the world would Luke do this? It's a great question. I'm glad I asked it. We'll come back to it. Okay. Most people think that the Gospel of Luke was written, the first Gospel written uh, primarily to who? Does anybody know? The Gentiles the people on the outside of the Jewish world. But he doesn't start off, he talks a lot about the Gentiles in Luke and Acts, but he doesn't start off there. Instead, he wants to make sure that we remember this whole thing started off with God's chosen people. That is, um, uh, God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. God comes to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12, and you need to know all of the Bible kind of turns on Genesis chapter 12. Um, God comes to this older couple that's infertile. They don't have any kids. They're like 100. And he says, I'm going to give you a kid. He <laughs> makes them the promise, you and, you're going to be in diapers and your kid is going to be in diapers at the same time. <clears throat> but not just you're going to have a kid. He promises he's going to start a whole new nation. My wife and I have five kids. And sometimes when people ask why, I say, it's because we're trying to start our own ethnicity. <laughs> but that really is true here. God is telling Abraham, well, you're going to start a whole nation. In fact, he tells them, just so you can get how big the promise I'm making to you is, go out and look up at the sky and look at all those stars. Every one of those stars is a metaphor for how many kids I'm going to give you, Abraham and Sarah. It's a promise of what I'm going to do through you. I will make you a great nation and you will be blessed to be a blessing. Here's what he actually says. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1. I don't know if that's on there because I forgot to highlight it. Is that on there? All right. All right. So I'll just sum it up, all right? Just for, uh, basically, he's saying, uh, leave your home, go to a place that I will show you in the future, and I will bless you to be a blessing. Now, this story is really, really significant because it comes right after... Genesis 11. Does anybody know what happens in Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. That's right. 
this, uh, um, th- these people, they decide that they're going to get, come together and they're going to make a great tower and they're going to build it up and they're going to become like God. And so God comes in and confuses their language, right? So they can't work with one another anymore. Um, they, they were all divided. And now God comes to Abraham and he says the exact thing that the people in the Tower of Babel, building the Tower of Babel, were trying to create. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make our name great. God says to Abraham, I'm going to do that for you. What they were trying to get for themselves, I'm going to give you as a gift. The world had just been divided into all kinds of tribes. And now God is coming to Abraham and saying, I'm going to create for you a new kind of tribe. Now, a tribe, you know the way tribes work, right? The way you kind of coalesce around each other is you talk bad about other tribes, right? That's the way it works. You know, you talk smack about whoever is on the outside of the tribe, and that's one of the best ways to keep keep your tribe staying together. But God comes to Abraham and says, this is going to be a different kind of tribe. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing to other tribes. This was a brand new idea. And as Abraham's kids grew, as this tribe grew, they carried with them the sense of calling that they had a unique role to play. They weren't going to be like all the other tribes. They weren't going to be just watching out for their own self-preservation and their own you know, um, um, protection. They were actually called to be a blessing to other tribes. This is a brand new idea in the world when it happens in Genesis chapter 12. And it keeps happening. This, God's people keep doing this. So like, for example... This is all throughout your Old Testament, like this uh, one time in 1 Kings chapter 17, um, Israel is in the middle of a drought and famine because they have started worshiping other gods. And the prophet Elijah goes to another nation. He goes to the nation of Sidon. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, but to the Israelites it would have meant a lot because Sidon was like the North Koreans or the Russians or whoever it is you don't like of Israelite. They were their neighbors and they hated these people. And he goes to um, Sidon. And when you hear that, you should know that everybody would have known, oh, he's in enemy territory. But he doesn't go there. The prophet doesn't go there to start a war. He goes there to find shelter. And he finds this widow, and he asks if he can stay with her. And the widow says, yes, she's an enemy, but she gives him shelter. And since they're in, they're in a tough time, it's a famine, times are tough, and food is scarce... Um, Elijah says, would you give me some of your bread and oil? And she was like, actually, I've got a son. And because there's a famine going on, all we have left is this little bit of bread and a little bit of oil. And basically, we were going to just eat that and then die. And Elijah's like, can I have some anyway? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You thought your preacher was needy. No, like, so uh, she, he, he says, listen, if you, can trust, if you can trust God enough, he's going to take care of you. So she makes some bread, and she shares some with Elijah. And sure enough, guess what? The oil and bread, there's still a little bit more. So she feeds everybody again, and there's still a little bit more. And she keeps doing this for who knows how long, but God makes sure that the bread and the oil don't run out. Later on in that chapter, her son dies. And Elijah goes and prays over her in the name of Yahweh. And her son comes back to life. Because Abraham's tribe was always blessed to be a blessing. What about this other time in Israel's history? They've been, they've been defeated by um, the um, Syrians. 
Specifically, <clears throat> this one general, a guy named Naaman, helped to lead the defeat of Israel. He's carted off their best and brightest into exile. And when you first meet <clears throat> Naaman in the Old Testament, you don't find out about how great of a general he was. History attests to that. But you don't find out about how great of a general he was. When you first meet Naaman in the Old Testament, the first thing you find out about him is that Naaman has what? He has leprosy. His, he has this skin disease. Um, and he, he's, he's dying. And so he's really, really desperate. And one of the um, people that he had helped, you know, he helped defeat this nation of Israel. And one of his servants was this um, uh, Israelite servant girl who he had forced into what we would call today slavery. And she says, if only Naaman would go to Israel, because Israel's God could do something about his leprosy. And so, even though he had just trounced this place, Naaman goes back. He finds out he needs to talk to a, the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says, you need to go bathe yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman does it. Desperate times call for desperate measures, so he goes and he dips in the river of the very nation that he had defeated. And he gets healed. I want you to think about these stories. These are people who are fed and saved and healed. They're not God's people. They're not believers. They're not Jews. They're outsiders. They're foreigners. They aren't us. They are them. But they're in your Bible. Those stories are in your Bible because it wants us to know God loves them too. In fact, it's a way of reminding us in Gen that Genesis 12, God really meant business. When he tells Abraham, I'm going to make a new kind of tribe. Kind of, you're going to be a blessed to be a blessing. At least that's how things were supposed to go. But over and over again, and see if this doesn't ring true in your own experience, over and over again, the people of God forget the mission of God. And so what happens is, in the Hebrew Scriptures, over and over again, they kind of drift internally. They start focusing on themselves. They lose track of who God is and who God is calling them to be. And so God sends them into exile. Now, that's not a word that means a lot to us <coughs> today, but exile was a really big deal. It meant that you, you didn't have your purpose. You didn't, your life didn't have the meaning it once did. The, the group of people that you were called to um, serve God with, did not have. you didn't have the coherence. To be in exile is to be obsolete, inadequate, irrelevant. And the book of Isaiah is a prophetic book written, you know, it's like really, really long prophetic book. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet is telling Israel, this is how bad it's going to be when you, got, when you are taken into exile. You're going to be slaves for someone else. You're going to be um, in captivity. You're going to be unknown. You're going to be forgotten. If the world is the Jackson 5, you're going to be Tito. Yeah, that joke has a definite shelf life on it, doesn't it? <laughs> the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is saying God is going to punish you for not being who you were called to be. But the people of Israel didn't need to read those first 39 chapters for long because they knew that story. I bet you know that story. I bet there's not a person in this room who doesn't know what it feels like to be out of harmony, out of step with God, to not be the person God created you to be. But then, in Isaiah chapter 40, the tone, everything changes. Isaiah promises a day when everything's going to be different, when God's going to bring them back from exile, when they're going to be restored. And when they're restored, Isaiah says, it's not going to be just about you. It was going to be about the entire world. So look at what Isaiah 49.6 says, if you could put that up. 
He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant. It's too small a thing for me to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring you back from exile. I will also make you Jewish people a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, what God is saying is when I bless you, when I bring you back from exile, it will not be just about you. The last 15 chapters of Isaiah are really about God restoring Israel and how when the Messiah comes, it's, the, he's going to set the world right with sacrificial service, the kind of service Israel had been called to show but hadn't. And that brings us to the Gospel of Luke. Because Jesus in the Gospel of Luke starts off his ministry. Before he does any ministry, he's baptized. He, he goes underwater, which, by the way, is really good news for you because if you've been baptized, here's what that means. It means that's where you met Jesus. That's where, if you ever doubt your salvation, if you ever doubt God's love for you, you can really just run your hand underwater. That's what a sacrament means. It's a reminder of God's goodness and salvation for you. Jesus gets baptized, not because Jesus needs to, but because Jesus wants to meet you there. And then as soon as he gets baptized, as soon as he gets the Spirit, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Luke tells us, that Jesus is hungry because Luke learned to write at the school of redundancy school. And he tells us that the, he's tempted by Satan, but he doesn't give in. Temptation, which is the story the Bible starts off with Adam and Eve, right? But where they said yes, Jesus said no. And then after Jesus has defeated evil in his own life, he now has picked up the calling of God to defeat evil in the world. And you want to know the very first place he goes? Church. When he's going to defeat evil in the world, he starts at church. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13. <clears throat> when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, <clears throat> and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, so giant scroll, was unrolled to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord, which, by the way, is right where this... Uh, um, 49, Isaiah 49.6 would have been. It's the same little section. He unrolls it and it's, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on, them, on him. He began by saying this to them. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. So he goes home to the people that he grew up with. And he unrolls the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Right past where it says, uh, you know, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. It's too small for me just to bring you back to exile. And he, he reads the, in the same little section. You know, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me. And it's a messianic passage. And he says, today, that is fulfilled in your hearing. You need to know, these people, when they heard that, it would have immediately made the room electric. 
It's something they've waited centuries for. It's all they talk about. It's all they hope for. And Jesus says, today this is happening. And the crowd goes wild. They love it. If I was Jesus' preaching teacher, I would say, drop the mic and walk away. You have done what you're supposed to do. But Jesus doesn't. Because Jesus knows, much like when somebody like me or Brian does this, there is a gap between what I say and what you think I'm saying. Jesus knows there is a gap between what he has just said and what they wanted him to just say. And so Jesus does the most dangerous move. He fills in that gap. Look at what he says in uh, Luke 4. Uh, verse 23. Jesus said to them, remember, these are people that like him. They're big fans of him. And Jesus says, you know what? Surely you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which by the way, they're going to do that at the end when he's on the cross, remember? Bring yourself down. Uh, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do in your hometown what we've heard you do in Capernaum. But truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, to which they'd be like, Jesus, we are accepting you right now. Take the key to the city. Be quiet. But he says, I assure you, there were many widows in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. Nope. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, but not any of them were cleansed. Instead, it was Naaman the Syrian And the people didn't like that. They were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Earlier in in this chapter, this very same chapter, guess who takes Jesus up on on a mountain and tries to throw him off a cliff? The devil. Satan. And now the people of God are doing the work of Satan. Why? Well, in a word, it's because of racism. That's what it is. That's what's happening. There's, it's a lot more complicated, a little bit more nuanced, but that's what the most accessible way to describe what's happening here. Jesus is standing up and saying to them, you are, have always been called to be a, a tribe that is a blessing to every other tribe. And like John the Baptist, just the chapter before me, don't think you're special because you're Abraham's descendants, because God could raise up out of these rocks Abraham's descendants, because the mission of God to Abraham was to be a blessing to the whole world, and they don't like that. That's why they try to kill him. Jesus begins his ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is here, and it's a new day for the people of God. God has been doing something that he's been promising for thousands of years, and it's available not just to people from the right ethnicity or who have the right numbers in their bank accounts or who have it all together. It's available for everybody. And the reason this matters is because I don't think we get what the kingdom of God really is. On June 7th, 1964, they gathered at the local United Methodist Church. They gathered like they always did. And they started off with a devotional and a prayer. The leader gathered together and prayed for them because they were, after all, God's chosen people, chosen to, uh, saved by Jesus to bless the world. And on this particular night, their leader, Sam Bowers, their preacher and leader, opened his Bible and read a scripture. And then he prayed this prayer, if you could put this up. 
He prayed the prayer, O God, our heavenly guide, as finite creatures of time and as dependent creatures of thine, we acknowledge thee as our sovereign Lord. Permit freedom and the joys thereof, thereof to reign forever throughout our land. May the sweet cup of brotherly fraternity ever be ours to enjoy and build within us that kindred spirit which will keep us unified and together. Engender and tong, <laughs> unified and tong, engender within us that wisdom kindred to honorable decisions and the godly work. By the power of thy infinite spirit and the energizing virtue therein, ever keep before us our pledges of righteousness. Bless us now in this assembly that we may honor thee in all things. We pray in the name of King Jesus, our blessed Savior. Amen. And then the members of the Ku Klux Klan got up and left the United Methodist building and went out trying to figure out how to perpetuate God's dream for white supremacy. Never underestimate the ability church people have, that everybody has, to baptize our own prejudices and call it the will of God. But when you do that, you will find out that the God of, that is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's one that looks just like you. In the words of Anne Lamont, you can safely assume that you have made God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people. You do. Like, I know, it's uncomfortable whenever people talk about racism in a church. When somebody like me stands up and talks about racism at a church. Because um, we, as a country, have a lot of examples of it. And by the way, I'm coming from Arkansas. So, <laughs> you know. Uh, matter of fact, let me just tell you this story. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up, great parents, they were foster parents. We had a lot of people in our home, people of color who lived in our home. But for the most part, I wasn't around people of color. Uh, I grew up in this little 10-person church. And one day, there was Brian had Down syndrome. Um, Brian, I would give him a ride um, to church every week. And one day, I decided I was in my parents' minivan, because that's a really good way to pick up the women with. And I was driving mom and dad's minivan, and I was taking Brian home. And I cut through a place in Arkansas that uh, I never went on. It was called The Hill. Actually, a lot of people called it a worse thing than that. It was just kind of common in the 80s growing up, in the 90s growing up. But that was where um, they lived. It was where people who were different than me lived. And so little white boys were terrified of The Hill. And one day I was cutting through there, driving Brian home, and the van broke down. I think this is a thing God does to people. Van breaks down, and um, this is pre-cell phone, so I'm like waiting for somebody to pull over so I can get a ride to, uh, you know, get mom and dad to help me get the van. And a cop car drives by. I mean, several things happen that made it feel like the Good Samaritan parable. And finally, this car pulls up, and it's four heavyset African-American women. And they're like, you need a ride? And I was like, yeah, my, my van broke down. And so they're like, all right, well, you can come to our house and use our phone. So I get in the car. I'm in the back seat with them. As we go over this crest, I see this giant man who was, to that moment in my life, the largest man I have ever seen in my life. And they start pulling over. They, wanna, they want me to um, meet the guy's name is Tyrell, I find out in a little bit. And they roll the window down. And they say, the first thing they say to Tyrell is, Tyrell, we got us a new man now. And I was like, oh, uh, no, Tyrell, you're the man, Tyrell. And then, 
And then uh, Tyrell leans in, and I'm just so nervous because, you know, this, this, I'm like shaking. And Tyrell leans in across the uh, thing and shakes my hand and goes, well, then welcome to the family. And it was this holy moment for me. It was a moment I've, I've been working out ever since in my life. It was a moment that made me move from Abilene, Texas, at a church I dearly loved, to come back to Little Rock, Arkansas, because we really need to work on this. But I realized those categories of us and them just don't work. Really, God, ever since Abraham, has been trying to do a new thing, a thing that's different than the way the rest of the world organizes itself. That the categories of us and them just aren't gonna work. And by the way, this is not a southern problem. This is not a black and white problem. Did you know that in Africa, in Rwanda, when that happened, when the genocide happened, 90% of the country were professing Christians? And entire churches would rise up and kill other churches. You know why? It's because they didn't get this. That this is from the very first sermon Jesus preached. Been at the center of what it means to be the people of God in the kingdom of God. Maybe you haven't heard this, but in Nazi Germany, there was a lot of churches in Nazi Germany. And the Nazis came to all these churches and they said, Listen, um, we're going to let you guys keep meeting. Just a few rules you have to, um, you have to uh, abide by. Because they knew, that, um, they knew that language mattered a lot. And so they basically hit, like it's called Hitler's big lie, is if you hear something, no matter how preposterous it is, if you hear something over and over and over again, eventually people, no matter how crazy it is, begin to believe it's true. And so the Nazis started making sure in the schools that kids heard the language that Jewish kids were like poisonous mushrooms. They looked normal on the outside, but inside they were poisonous. They slowly took over churches. They said, look, you can keep meeting just a few rules. One, you can't preach anything from the Old Testament. You can't read any psalms, and you can't say Jesus is a Jew. And by the way, just to encourage you, thousands of church pastors refused to go along with this. It was called the Confessing Church, and they resisted, right? My favorite was this great theologian named Karl Barth, who when Hitler came up with those rules, he stood up the next Sunday and he preached a sermon called Jesus was a Jew, and then he mailed it to Hitler. And then he moved to Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> But this is a universal problem. This is a human problem. It's a sin problem. Because since sin entered the world, we've been trying to figure out a way to carve up the world to keep certain people out. For thousands of years, people have been creating a God for their tribe, for their family, for their nation, for their land. And those gods were for you and they were against them. But the God of Israel isn't like that. That's why Jesus stands up and the first thing he says, is, and, and why the Gospel of Luke is trying to remind you of this. Because in that moment, and this is why this is good news for you, unless you are a Jewish person, and granted there may be some of our Jewish brothers and sisters here today, but unless you are a Jewish person, aren't you glad Jesus preached this in his first sermon? Because in that moment, you were on the other side. To all my Gentile brothers and sisters out there, right? you need to remember, you were the them, not the us. And Jesus starts off his ministry to the people of God, reminding them God is relentlessly pursuing the whole world. And the reason this is important is because, look, if you're like me, I know I'm a racist. I don't want to be. I grew up in a time and place where, you know, it was, something was in the air. It's a principality in power. And whenever racism becomes a, part, a conversation in the news, I cringe. Because you know what I know people are going to do? 
People are going to front, they're going to posture, they're going to pull out, oh, I have a friend who is. And they're not going to do the one most very Christian thing that we Christians can do. Confess. Yeah. Man, I, I got to learn. I, I know God calls me to love those people. Those are my brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is the very first sermon he preaches. He's letting us know the kingdom of God is for everybody. And doesn't him doing this make you reconsider your own racism and classism? Aren't you glad Jesus stood against racism when you were on the other side of that wall? Aren't you glad Jesus stood up for the poor when a lot of us, me included, grew up poor? Aren't you glad to know Jesus starts off his ministry by breaking down walls when you realize you were on the other side of it? You know what's interesting? The, the very next passage from Isaiah that Jesus quotes, in Isaiah when he, when he quotes, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, this is how that passage ends in Isaiah 61 too. The, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He, he does not say the day of vengeance. Jesus leaves that. He drops that by and instead picks up the rest, the bigger themes of the last part of Isaiah about saving the world through sacrificial servants. That's why they're mad. They're mad. The Jewish people are mad because they're being oppressed by Rome. They've got lots of legitimate reasons not to like Gentiles. But Jesus reminds them that the God who made them has never just been the God of the Jews, but the God who made and loves the whole wide world, who loves the people who don't look like you, even the people you don't like. God loves them too. You know, this is all throughout the New Testament. When John writes his most famous verse, For God so loves the... You know what he wanted to write? He wanted to write, for God so loves the Jews. For God so loves Abraham's descendants. But after he'd spent three and a half years with Jesus, he knew it was bigger than that. And so John writes, for God so loves the world. This is something Luke wants you to know. Luke tells, it's only in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritans. Jewish people hated Samaritans. There would be no such thing as the good Samaritan in the world. It's an oxymoron. It'd be like saying the good Oakland Raiders fan, right? <laughs> Brian and I workshopped that a little bit. If you don't like it, then take it up with him. But why does Jesus want to tell that story? Why does Luke want to make sure you hear it? Because Luke wants you to know that when Acts 2, he doesn't want you surprised. When Acts 2 happens, when the Holy Spirit falls, and all these um, Jews from different nations get the Holy Spirit... He doesn't want you to be surprised. In Acts 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch, who would basically be like a, a, both a racial and a sexual minority, when the Ethiopian eunuch uh, asked Philip, well, here's water, what keeps me from getting baptized? The right answer is a lot of reasons, dude. Like there's all kinds of verses that keep you from being baptized. But now Philip knows something he did, that God so loves the Ethiopian eunuch. So he gets baptized. Luke doesn't want you to be surprised when in Acts 10, when the Roman centurion Cornelius, when the Holy Spirit falls on him, and even that dude is a part of this. He wants you to know Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, has this in mind. That this is a surprising turn of events, but it's always been who God is. And so Jesus ends his scripture by saying, this is the year of the Lord's favor which is the same word as grace. This is the year of the Lord's grace. It's why people respond the way they do. One translation actually puts it up. If you could put that up in Luke chapter 4, it says, do we have that? 
No? Okay. It says, The people were astonished by... It's 4 verse 22. The people were astonished by the words of sheer grace that were coming out of his mouth. Because this whole thing is sheer grace. Look, you're not saved because you're white. You're not saved because you're black. You're not saved because you're Indian. You're not saved because you're Hispanic. You're not saved because of your grandparents. You are saved because of grace. This is the kingdom of God. People, and by the way, this is a picture of the kingdom of God. If you were to look out over this church and you were say, well, what's this church primarily? Well, it's primarily human, I would say. I mean, it's a picture of, of, of the kingdom of God. People who are never friends, would never have been friends, are family here because we are a holy nation made from all nations. We're a part of a kingdom that is unshakable and unmistakable. A kingdom made from every tribe and every tongue. And let me tell you what we're doing. We're practicing for heaven right now. And that brings me back to the question, why this, Luke? Why this giant thing? Why would you do all this? There is In the ancient world, and you're going to love this, there is only one kind of genre of something like this because it costs so much money to write this. And the only genre of something like this, I'd like to invite the band to start taking their places by the time, by, uh, right now, by the way. The only kind of document that was like this in the ancient world is when a nation would commission a group, uh, like a writer or a historian to write something to describe who they were, that their nation was the greatest. That's the only thing like this. And so Luke is doing that. Luke is writing this thing saying, we are the greatest out there, but we're not a nation, we're a kingdom. We're the kingdom of God where everyone is welcomed and loved and affirmed in Jesus Christ. Racism is not a white-black problem. It's everywhere. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse, which means now is a great time to be the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be like the first Christians. We're trying to be like Jesus. Not trying to get everything right for one hour. We're trying to be the people of God that God has always dreamed for us to be. And when the world sees that, it notices. A lot of y'all have heard the story of Ruby Bridges. She was one of the first young black kids that was integrated back in um, Louisiana in the 60s. And when she went to uh, be integrated, when she was integrating the school, there were these people, white people, who were throwing things and yelling and saying the most heinous things to her. So much so because she was so young, there was some psychologist who wanted to interview Ruby and see what kind of trauma that did on her young psyche. And they noticed as she was walking to school every day that she was uh, saying something back to the people who were yelling at her. And so the psychologist asked her, Ruby, what are you saying to these people who are saying these vile, heinous things to you? She said, well, I'm not, I'm not saying anything to them. And they said, no, Ruby, we can see your lips moving. We know you're saying something. Actually, Ruby said, oh, I'm not saying anything to them. I'm talking to God. And they asked this little black girl, what are you saying to God as you walk past these people? who are hurling and saying the worst things to you. She says, oh, that's easy. I'm just saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that's who we've been called to be. We are a nation of grace. 
We are no longer slaves. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Let's stand and worship together now. surround me with 